Warehouse. This is the Pete Callender Show on News Radio 570 WWNC. Hey, <laughs> alrighty, welcome to the program. Whoa, that sounded weird. What was that? Did you not hear that? Okay. Uh, welcome to the program. It's Tuesday, it's May 7th, and it is 72 degrees in West Asheville. Hope you're having a great day. And um, <laughs> I am. <I'm laughs> I don't know. Does it, like, there may be something wrong with me in that I actually enjoy arguing with people online. Is there, is that, does that mean there's something wrong with it? I think I do it respectfully, I you know, mm-hmm. I, but... And I don't take it personally. I don't. I don't really get mad. I'm just kind of. You just feed on the conflict. I'm not feeding on it. I'm just saying, like, <laughs> it's just it, like I look at it sort of like sociology kind of experiment. I look at it like, isn't this an interesting thing to see? Oh wow, they're saying that. That's, huh? I never would have suspected somebody would say something like that out loud. You know, stuff like that. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not like a drama junkie or I'm not trying to right. stir conflict. I'm just like, oh, this person believes X. I believe not X. Let's discuss. That's all. What? Why are you looking at me like that? <laughs> Speaking of the social media, have you heard about the deplatforming that occurred over the weekend? Facebook. Uh, kicked off a bunch of people from its uh, from its website. And it was interesting the reaction that uh, a lot of people in journalism had to this announcement to this news. They were very much in favor. They were very much in favor of seeing folks like Alex Jones. Paul Joseph Watson, Laura Loomer, uh, Paul Nealon, Milo Yapoliplus, uh, and then Louis Farrakhan, who I recall was right, wasn't he a, he was a far right activist? I think the New York right, Times right. and the Washington Post labeled him as a far right, and the Atlantic as well, and the Atlantic, right? Okay. Sorry, I just saw this message from Brian. I'll have to read that about a rat's kidney. Um, All right, and uh, so for folks who aren't aware of who all of these people are, all of them except Farrakhan, they are all essentially alt-right media figures, okay? And the alt-right is not really the right, by the way. I know people on the left think the alt-right is... They want to lump everybody as alt-right and neo-Nazi and such, but um, you start picking away at some of the the actual philosophy that undergirds what these people are espousing, and oftentimes uh, you don't have to pick very much in order to figure out, oh, they're actually statists. They just want the state to do different things. Okay, So um, and it's not in all cases, on all subjects, but, uh, and look, like I've done my... You know, I've done my uh, my analysis on uh, Alex Jones. 
you know what my views are. Not a fan of the guy. Think he's. I think he's insane. And I don't know why anybody trusts anything that he says, except that they want to be misled. So, um, confrontational, do you think? What? No, I'm Victor. I'm not confrontational. I don't think I'm confrontational. What are you? What are you going to make of it if I am? No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> so, the. Um, Facebook offered very little in the way of specifics about why these so-called dangerous individuals, that's what they call them, why they were banned from the world's most active social media site. Quote, we've always banned individuals or organizations that promote or engage in violence and hate, uh, regardless of ideology, said the company. Sorry, I guess I should do that. Because you and I both know that's not true. They banned Farrakhan while they banned Alex Jones. Farrakhan has been a rabid anti-Semite my entire life. I've never known the guy to be anything but a hate monger. Okay? Um, There are also people all over Facebook that are engaging in hate. Right? Don't you think so? You come across it pretty regularly, I'm sure. I do. If you're on social media, if you're on Facebook specifically, and I don't really spend a lot of time on Facebook any longer, um, because the you know the joke is Twitter is where you go to find out that uh, you know all of these people around you are jerks, and Facebook is where you go to find out that all of the people you know are jerks. That's the okay. Um, They don't always ban individuals and organizations that promote or engage in violence and hate. Antifa, for example, they're still around. You got various uh, organizations that are uh, down with the PLO or the P, what do they call it now? The PIJ and Hamas and Hezbollah. Um, I mean, ISIS had a big presence for a while. So, like, this idea that, you know, Facebook is Johnny on the spot all the time for taking down hate. And violence. I mean, I would even I would even just separate the violence calls for violence. I would separate out because that stuff can be pretty clear, although they abuse that as well and ignore other things. But I like even like you need to separate the two because I'm not aware of, for example, Paul Joseph Watson, who I see his stuff on Twitter. They haven't banned him on Twitter. I've never seen him call for violence. He's one of Alex Jones's protégés. Not a fan of his. I wouldn't trust anything he says. But um, I've never seen him make any calls for violence. But now what is hate? Uh, Now, that is a different thing altogether, because when you start discussing what is hate in today's day and age, hate is not believing that a five-year-old child can determine that he's actually a girl. If I don't believe that child can actually make that determination, that's hate in the eyes of the social media companies, right? That's, and that is, that is directed by the people who work there and their ideology. And their ideology crowds out all dissent. It's kind of their jam. That's what the ideology is about, no dissent. In which case, then, what is the purpose of social media? Just to share pictures, cat memes, right? So that's why I don't really spend a lot of time on Facebook. Um, 
every but I do check it. And uh, I usually just open it up, look through real quick, and boop, shut it all down, <laughs> and then don't open it again. Uh, so what happened uh, in the wake of uh, the Facebook announcement? Well-known defenders of free speech with fancy bylines at the country's top news organizations cheered. This, by the way, is from Julie Kelly, writing at American Greatness, amgreatness.com. Uh, Maggie Haberman from the New York Times. Um, Oliver Darcy, I believe he's with the Daily Beast. S.E. Cup, who I thought used to be a conservative. Now she's on CNN. Anna Navarro Cardenas. Or, sorry, Cardenas. The accent's on the first A. Cardenas. By the way, pro tip. In Spanish, was it the second to last syllable is always the one accented unless they put the little accent somewhere else and that's where the that then that's what you hit. So Cardenas, you would say it Cardenas. That would be the, the emphasis on the second to last syllable. Cardenas, that's what you hit. Boom. But they move the little accent mark, right? They push it to the first A, so now it's Cardenas. And that's one to grow on. Okay, so Anna Navarro, Cardenas, uh, she recently got married, but she is the former Republican who is now a leftist on CNN as well. That's really, have you noticed that's what CNN does? They bring on, quote, conservatives, and then the conservatives somehow or another all espouse lefty positions. It's this weird, it's a really weird thing I've noticed along with the, what, 100,000 other people that watch CNN still. By the way, those their ratings are awful. We may actually see the end of CNN. Because you, I, I don't know how you sustain the operation when you have, I mean, honestly, like, more people watch the Kentucky Derby, the pregame stuff, you know? Like, hour number seven <laughs> than watch CNN. So, Well, that's not really fair, because hour number seven was when the race happened. Oh, that's when so. the <laughs> so hour number three, we'll call it. There you go. Yeah. But I mean, honestly, their ratings, like they're they're pulling. I want to say there's something like two hundred, two hundred fifty thousand people in prime time. That's like that. You got websites that get more traffic than that. Seriously, you have conservative websites that are getting probably five, six times that amount of traffic in a day. So, anyway, all of these, you know, quote mainstream media, drive by media types. Uh, along with like MSNBC's Katie Turr. Um, they were all celebrating. Turr posted, uh, Facebook has banned a number of conspiracy theorists. And then she wondered aloud why it had taken the tech company so long to do it. An editorial in the Washington Post over the weekend applauded Facebook's censure of Jones, a, quote, conservative conspiracy theorist, and commended the company for reviewing its latest outcasts in the broader context of their role both on its site and in society. Look, Alex Jones and Watson and, you know, some of these other, well, I guess I, I don't know if all of them do. I'm not sure because I don't really follow the work of like these people. I don't. Laura Loomer, the only time I've been made aware of her is when she like handcuffed herself to like the door of Twitter or something when they banned her. And, you know, she, would get up and disrupt plays in New York and she would go and disrupt or whatever. And she basically used the tactics of the left where, by the way, code pink, they're still all over the place, right? The, the people who, who do these 
same types of actions that Loomer did that I'm aware of, um, they're still around. They still get to have Facebook. So um, I, I'm not really clear on all the work that these people do, but I get the feeling that it was about their conspiracy theories. And to be clear, I think virtually all of the people that are on this list, I think they probably all tend to lean towards the crazy people who believe in the conspiracy theories of these, the, these people that, the, and they're peddling these, these lies. Like you want to be deceived. People go looking for the lie because it's easier to believe that somebody is in control and there's a plan than to believe otherwise, which is that there really isn't control. And a lot of people just do stupid things and, 19 guys actually can hijack a bunch of planes, right? And, uh, yeah, the buildings came down because they had two jet airliners crashed into them filled with fuel. Um, Stuff like that. And, no, I'm not interested in having the debate with misguided people who want to believe and need to believe that there was some grand conspiracy uh, by George Bush or the Republicans or the government or whatever. Not interested. Um. Yeah, Fred says Infowars. Alex Jones is not conservative. He's just crazy. Yeah, exactly. Um, and Janet says, is the CNN audience mainly captives in airports? That's yes. <laughs> yeah, probably. Right. I think so. Uh, I'm not sure. Do they count? Do they count each individual box that's on, or do they? Do they have some sort of like, you know, that was one of the jokes. Who was it? This was years ago. One of the jokes of the Charlotte Observer. I forget who it was, but they did a tour of the Charlotte Observer. Somebody I worked with. Oh, it was a former boss of mine, Marshall Adams. And he did a tour and they told the tour, the Observer people told the people on the tour that Every newspaper is read by like 14 people. I know, right? That's what? what yeah. They had some sort of permutation that they could say so well if you know we sell this one paper that's not just one person reading the paper. So when you go out and sell this this to you know if you're a circulation salesperson you're trying to sell that this isn't like okay well we have you know I don't know, 10,000 subscribers to the dead tree copy of the paper. 10,000. Okay, so what, I'm going to pay you, what, $20,000 to get an ad in the paper and I'm going to get to 10,000 people? Like, I'm not going to do that. That's ridiculous. Well, no, 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 wait, wait, wait. Every paper is seen by more than one person. I mean, think about it. The paper gets delivered to a household, and if you got, you know, four people in the household, everyone's going to look at the paper, so your 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 message is going to be seen by all four of those people. Mm. So automatically it goes from 10,000 to 40. See that? And then if you think about it, like, you get, we have papers that get delivered all the time to, like, doctor's offices and such. Really? I thought that was magazines. No, no, we have them in doctor's offices, too. Papers. They get newspapers. Um, you know, corporate settings, like, you know, we drop off. I mean, think about it. You drop a, a stack of newspapers off to like WLOS. How many people are reading the paper over there? Oh, my God. <laughs> I'm not kidding. 
That is ridiculous. Yeah, it was some. Yeah, so they've got some multiplier that they use for their. I would love to challenge those numbers. I would like an actual study because I actually believe that the amount of reach for one newspaper is less less than one person on average. Yeah, that the paper just like shows up and people are like, oh, look, the paper. They look at the front page and then they throw the whole thing away. Right. Yeah. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, but that was the – and who knows what the different papers are. I don't know what the multipliers are, but I seem to recall like that was the number. It was a ridiculously large number. It might have been long. It makes sense. I, yeah. I, I, could, I could totally believe sitting in that PowerPoint presentation Absolutely. by the bosses. Right. Like, this is how many we can actually determine. that. No, you can't. Anyway, so so these – I don't even know how I got on this topic. How did I get here? I don't even know. So the uh, but the, the this expand this multiplier of like fourteen and this idea that oh the paper goes out to all of these people and that's what they actually see and that's their actual reach it's way more you know it's way more uh, and that's I'm sure they use the same thing over at the Washington Post um, and I'm sure they use the same thing at the New York Times I'm sure that they all have a multiply number right that they know for sure way more people are reading the paper I'm curious. Would you say that those circulation rates, when you add in the sharing on social media like Facebook and Twitter and such, do you think the New York Times has a greater reach than InfoWars, for example? I'd say so. Because the New York Times not only infiltrates social media platforms, but they also infiltrate the... um, they also inf- they also infiltrate the. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm, I got distracted there. They get, they infiltrate social media as well as all of the other media companies. A story in the New York Times that runs in the morning is going to get followed up by TV stations, network television stations. The network TV news, CBS, ABC, NBC, their nightly newscasts, they rely on LA Times, New York Times. Uh, Washington Post, you know, they they read these papers and then they use those stories. And those audiences, by the way, millions of people still like to this day, I want to say the last time I looked, it was like five, six, seven million. But I don't know where the numbers are now. It's been years since I looked at the the network newscast numbers. So if you're going to ban Alex Jones for peddling conspiracy theories and infecting the body politic with lies. Um, what then of the New York Times? What then of the Washington Post? The obvious here is the Trump-Russia story, right? But what about uh, Brett Kavanaugh? And what about Covington Catholic High School? Right? Both of these. Uh, or all three of these stories. All right, I'm going to take a break here because right, I'm going to. All right, hang on. We'll be back in a minute. The Pete Callender Show on WWNC. Hey. The Pete Callender Show. When you came in, the air went out. News Radio 570 WWNC. Yes, uh, Taylor says tinfoil Tom hardest hit on the. Yeah. In one way, oh sorry. 
Uh, Ken says, Pete, I know it's a joke, but if you think about all the airports in the United States and then consider how many TVs there are in each airport, and the overall number is probably well over a quarter million, the airports make up 75 to 80% of the audience. Right, that's how I got onto the multiplier. Like, I don't know, do they count one TV, one box? Do they say, well, one one TV at the airport gets us a thousand people <laughs> every hour? I don't know. I'd be curious to see if they do those numbers like that for CNN. Um, the reporters, though, that were all celebrating the deplatforming of Alex Jones and company are the same news organizations. They work at this these organizations that have intentionally misled the American public about three things. The Trump-Russia election, uh, collusion hoax, the Brett Kavanaugh rape allegations, and the Covington Catholic High School smirking myth. Right, All three of these. These well-connected influencers, unlike Laura Loomer, have the ability to destroy careers, reputations, and lives, and they do that regularly. The Times and The Post have published thousands of articles speculating that Donald Trump and his campaign team coordinated with the Kremlin to manipulate the 2016 presidential election. Celebrated columnists have suggested Trump is a Russian agent, a Putin puppet, even a traitor for his supposed ties to Russian President Vladimir Putin. It was the Washington Post that first reported on these spurious allegations from Christine Blasey Ford against Supreme Court Justice nominee Brett Kavanaugh, igniting an unprecedented political war in D.C. while stoking rage and discord across the nation. Story after story followed in the Post, which kept an ongoing list of sordid and baseless accusations against Kavanaugh. No claim was too far-fetched. No accuser was too sketchy. NBC News aired that interview with Julie Swetnick, a known liar, obvious lunatic, whose outlandish claims against Kavanaugh never were substantiated. Couldn't be. The New York Times even published a ludicrous piece about an alleged ice-throwing incident from more than 30 years ago. CNN gave ample airtime to low-life lawyer Michael Avenatti, uh, who made more threats against Kavanaugh. Um, her story, Blasey Ford's story and the claims that followed never were substantiated. Her congressional testimony were uncon uh, was unconvincing on the facts, and others directly refuted her account. The media scrum then devolved into questions about whether Kavanaugh was a drunk. The media then concocted their own conspiracy theory that Donald Trump's FBI was covering up for Kavanaugh, refusing to engage in a thorough investigation as each claim materialized. Kavanaugh and his family forever have to live with the consequences of the grotesque assault unleashed against him by the media. He and his family and lawmakers supporting his nomination were subjected to harassment and death threats. No apology has ever been issued. There's been no deplatforming of those who propagated the most outrageous charges against him. Just crickets from Silicon Valley. And then there's the Covington Catholic School hoax. That's next. The Pete Callender Show on WWNC. Bye. The Pete Callender Show. Whoopsie. Alrighty, News Radio 570 WWNC. Every single time you take your vehicle over to Jimmy's Automotive, you are going to have it run through a 27-point inspection. They do it for every car, every SUV, every pickup truck, every vehicle. Uh, and they do it so they can identify any problems that you may not even be aware existed. 
and then they'll let you know, hey, uh, you know, your tires probably are going to need to get those changed like in a couple months, six months, a year, whatever, just letting you know. I like that because it lets me plan, lets me budget ahead of time. Um, they do a test drive after any work is done to make sure that whatever problem you brought it in for actually got fixed. They have a customer car care card. The more you use it, the more you will save. That is exclusively for Jimmy's customers. They have a fleet of loaner cars, so you can drive one of their cars while yours is being fixed. Uh, they will even pick you up or drop you off from work or home um, if you're within five miles of the shop. All you got to do is ask. That really is the thing. You got questions, just ask Jimmy's. Just ask the guys at the front desk, Brian, TJ, Randy. Ask them. They've, they've got answers. They can help you out. Um, they use only BG products. They service most aftermarket warranties. They're independent, and they're locally owned. And they have been since Jimmy Sexton started it up 30-plus years ago uh, at an old fruit stand. So uh, now it's a high-tech shop, obviously, a dozen bays, lots of great mechanics working there. By the way, if you or somebody you know is looking for a great place to work as an auto tech, five-day work week, health insurance, 401K, vacation pay, give them a call, 658-3030. Make an appointment, bring your car there, 658-3030. Jimmy's Automotive is where customers send our friends. Uh, All righty, so the Covington Catholic high school hoax it would be almost impossible by the way again this is julie kelly writing at amgreatness.com americangreatness.com and the headline is if deplatforming hoaxers is okay the news media should be in big trouble and this is not by the way this is not any sort of whataboutism this is this is called arguing for the consistent application of standards and if Facebook is going to deplatform people for spreading wild conspiracy theories and hoaxes, then mainstream media outlets and the people who work for them and get on the air and say wildly reckless things, then they need to be deplatformed as well. That's that would be the consistent application of the standard. Unfortunately, we don't really know what the standard is because Facebook just decides on its own what it is, and then they put out a press release saying, you know, violence and hate, dangerous figures, he called them. They're going to get sued. They're going to get sued. Some of these guys, I think it's Watson, was saying, you know, you branded me as a dangerous person. Like, that's, who, who are you to say that? I've done, I've done nothing violent, nothing dangerous, and you've now labeled me that in on a platform with a reach of more than a billion people. Is it a billion or is it two now? Two billion? Like, how dare you? What is the evidence that he's, that what he has done is dangerous? There was none presented. But Facebook, in its declaration, in its statement, that's what it is accusing these people of being, of doing. And if you want to make that kind of an argument, you want to make that case, then make the case. But you don't just get to call somebody a name like that and essentially smear them for the rest of their lives because that's what Facebook just did. And again, I don't follow any of these people. I don't, I don't know much of their work at all. I know that they all, except for Farrakhan, they're all of the, quote, alt-right. I have no love for anybody over there. But I, I don't know what they're trafficking in. I don't know what they're saying. Like Paul Nealon, that guy, rabid racist, total racist. Um, that's the guy who ran for Congress against Paul Ryan up in uh, Wisconsin. Got pounded in that race. Um, 
But I'd like to see whatever evidence it is that Facebook used to determine who precisely is dangerous. Were there, were there people that didn't make the cut? Were there like almost too dangerous for Facebook? Were there a couple people that were almost too dangerous? And like, who would they be? But let's revisit the Covington Catholic High School hoax. It would be almost impossible to come up with a more despicable example of fake news than the hoax that tore through social media last January claiming a group of high school kids disrespected a native elder. A screenshot of one Kentucky teenager wearing a MAGA hat and attending the March for Life appeared to show him smirking in the face of the innocent man. The photo and the video clip that turned out to be doctored went viral with major news outlets like CNN and the Washington Post instantly reporting the phony storyline with such similarity of language that it was impossible not to notice. The scam was later shown to be what appeared an orchestrated social media campaign bolstered by Democratic operatives. The New York Times quickly proclaimed that the doctored video was representative of Trump's America. CNN's S.E. Cup exploited the bogus Covington story interviewing the native elder as a legitimate victim and then hate-tweeting at the teenagers. Uh, Nicholas Sandman and his family are now suing CNN, NBC News, and the Washington Post for defamation. I think they're suing each of those outlets for like minimum quarter million dollars. Or, uh, sorry, quarter of a billion. $250 million apiece. While people like Jones and uh, Alex Jones and Joseph Paul Watson, while they're banished from social media, there's no such censure against insidious massive news organizations that arguably have inflicted far more serious and irrevocable damage upon innocent people and our nation at large. Where is the consistent application of the standard? I have not spent a ton of time doing much on the Russia collusion story because look I don't know and I'll I have I have said this from the beginning I wanted the Mueller investigation to be completed I wanted to know as much information as possible right I I want an investigation I want the Inspector General Michael Horowitz I want to see his report I wanted to see the Mueller report I want to see congressional investigations I want to see William Barr's investigation I want to know what happened and the only way we're going to find out what happened is if you get more investigation of the investigation because it does from what what has now come out it seems really clear to me that uh this was not the the truth is not what the media portrayed and either they were willing accomplices or they got used and there's no way in my opinion you could be used for as long as they were used and not know it you're a reporter, and you got sources inside the intelligence community, and they're feeding you these, these stories, these leaks over the course of two years, and one after another after another after another turn out to be fake, turn out to not be true and unsupported by any other evidence. At some point, you have to wonder whether the disinformation campaign is using you to leak out the messages. And if... And if you don't ever consider that possibility, you're an awful journalist, first of all, or you do know what's happening and you're okay with it because the ends justify the means. In which case, then, you are also an awful journalist. Okay? Um, is the Trump-Russia story, the Russian collusion, 
is that is that a conspiracy theory? Is it a conspiracy theory that the deep state did this collusion story? Hmm. Who would get deplatformed in that scenario? You've got, because if you think about it, we have competing conspiracy theories now, don't we? <laughs> right? We have the one that was uh, alleged for the last two plus years that, you know, Donald Trump was getting secret orders from Vladimir Putin on the on the red phone or something and through the campaign. And, you know, Putin called him up and was like, hey, we got all these Hillary emails. We're going to be ditching them uh, to WikiLeaks. None of that turned out to be true. And, by the way, the Mueller report shows this. If you haven't seen Andy McCarthy, uh, I linked this up yesterday at the Pete page at WWNC.com, so you can uh, go check it out there. Uh, Andy McCarthy had a really good write-up. It was pretty lengthy, so it's going to take you some time, but it's a national review. It's called The FBI's Trump-Russia Investigation Was Formally Opened on False Pretenses. Formally, not formerly, but formally opened on false pretenses. Oh, and by the way, the former director of national intelligence, James Clapper, was on the Situation Room yesterday on CNN, and he was asked about the New York Times's bombshell report. Yeah, bombshell. Yeah, that's a bombshell. Yeah, I heard somebody ask this question. I don't know. I don't know, remember who it was. I apologize for stealing the quote, but or the concept of the question, which was, isn't it amazing that not a single reporter ever thought at any point throughout this entire two-plus-year-long probe, nobody ever thought, hey, what if Trump got set up on this? Because I thought that. That's why, that's why I wanted the investigation, because like, I could see that. I've, said, and I've been saying that for as long as this has been going on. You know, Would it surprise me if Trump had some people in his orbit that were connected to the Kremlin? No, it would not surprise me. Paul Manafort, right? I mean, like, that's the obvious one, for crying out loud, right? The guy who worked for the Ukrainian puppet of Putin. Like, that guy seems like he would, that would be a connection, right? So no, it would not surprise me. And, and Trump had business dealings in Russia, right? He knew Russians. Like, these guys, these really, really rich people and the really rich people from Russia, like, what was it? One of the guy's sons was a DJ at the Miss America thing. Like, of course their paths crossed. Sure. Is it believable that the, that the Russians would try to do some infiltration? It's believable. Is there evidence of it? Well, let's see. Oh, there's no evidence of it? Okay. But on the other hand, is it also believable that people at the FBI and the CIA really don't like Donald Trump? And man, they were willing to do a bunch of stuff to undermine him so he couldn't get his agenda done in the first two years of his presidency. That they tried to, they tried to, you know, stir up all this doubt about him and the connections with Russia in an effort to undermine him, to kneecap him. Is that possible too? Absolutely, it is. How come no reporters in the national level? How come nobody thought about that? How come nobody pursued that line of thinking? What do we, what do we talk about when we say, oh, when reporters say things like, oh, it'll be interesting to see? It means it's interesting to them, and obviously nobody ever thought it was interesting. Ooh, wouldn't it be interesting if? Trump was actually the victim in this? Have we considered that possibility? It never even crossed their minds, I'm sure. And so when the New York Times 
does its story, when was it, last week? They did the story on, uh, on how it wasn't just Stefan Halper that the FBI tried to insert into the Trump campaign. They also put in, what do they call it, a cloaked investigator, I think is what they called it. <laughs> a cloaked investigator. Uh, posing as Halper's research assistant in order to try to get into the campaign as well and gather intel and interrogate and interview George Papadopoulos. And so when Trump said, or I'm sorry, when uh, William Barr said, well, Trump did say this as well uh, in a tweet earlier, uh, but when Trump and uh, Attorney General Barr both said that uh, they're looking into you know whether or not Trump was spied on and that, that there was spying that occurred and everybody was, oh, I can't believe it. Really? I, I can believe that. Like, you, that's what you guys do, isn't it? Like, your sole function is to spy on people. So, like, the idea that you would spy on people, no, that's not so far-fetched. And look, I've said this also from the beginning. If there was enough evidence that presented itself that warranted a legitimate concern that a political campaign had been compromised by Russia and that, you know, these guys are all Russian actors or something and Vladimir is back there pulling the strings for the campaign and for maybe even the candidate himself. And if they really believe that, then, yeah, I would expect an investigation to be launched, wouldn't you? I, yeah. Wouldn't you expect them to start listening in and be like, OK, is is Putin actually doing this? But one of the things that they never did for Trump that they did for, like, Feinstein, and apparently they do for others, is that they would go and say, hey, look, the Russians are trying to make inroads in your campaign. But they never did that, right? They never did that. They never gave him a heads up. Maybe they thought he was already compromised. No evidence of that, though. And so now we find out that after everybody got all upset about, oh, I can't believe he said that there was spying can you believe it? That word has a meaning. I can't believe he said it. Bill Barr chooses his words carefully. He said spying. And everybody couldn't believe that Bill Barr would say such a thing. Well, last night on CNN, former director of national intelligence, James, uh, James Clapper, was asked about the New York Times bombshell report that the Obama administration's effort in 2016 to surveil then-GOP presidential nominee Donald Trump. Clapper was asked whether those efforts were equivalent to spying. His response, quote, well, yeah, I guess it meets the dictionary definition of surveillance or spying. <laughs> so it was spying because it meets the definition of spying. So therefore, yeah, it's spying. He then said, look, I don't particularly like the term. It's not a term of art used by intelligence people. It has a negative connotation of a rogue operation, out of control, not in compliance with the law. And that's not the case at all. Really? I don't know if that's been concluded yet. I know you're trying to convince me that all of this was above board, but... Up until this past week, you guys said spying didn't happen. Now you're saying, okay, kind of did, but we don't like that word. I don't care if you like the word. Well, we want to make sure that, you know, this is a negative connotation. Like, we're, it implies that we weren't following the law. Oh, I'm sorry. Is there any evidence that you were following the law so far? I've not seen that. Like, 
this is like we're just now getting to the point where we all are on the same page that spying happened after you guys have said for two plus years that it wasn't happening. Now we find out it, it did happen and you want us to believe that you totally followed all the rules, which is why you lied about it for two years. Makes sense to me, right? Then he said, quote, they were not spying or sorry, this was not then. This was back in May, last May. So a year ago, he said they were not spying on Trump. He said this on The View, <laughs> which is where you go for all of the hard-hitting journalisming. Um, he said they were spying, a term I don't particularly like, by the way, on what the Russians were doing. See, we weren't spying on Trump in the campaign. We were spying on what the Russians were doing. Funny thing, though, no evidence that Russia was actually doing anything in the campaign. There's... the. There's, there's nothing I've come across that shows Russian involvement in the actual campaign itself. The president seized on that statement, saying, there's a seizing, he pounced, you might say. The president seized on that statement, saying, Clapper has now admitted that there was spying in my campaign. Large dollars were paid to the spy far beyond normal, starting to look like one of the biggest political scandals in U.S. history. Spygate, a terrible thing. The left-wing media pushed back on that tweet at the time by running fact checks, accusing the president of distorting the truth. CNN, where James Clapper now works as a contributor, ran a piece titled, James Clapper did not say what Donald Trump keeps saying he said. <laughs> so, they, so they ran a fact check saying Clapper didn't say they were spying. But now he says they were. <laughs> so who's getting deplatformed over this? Anybody? Wolf Blitzer also asked uh, Clapper whether he believes the Department of Justice Inspector General is going to, quote, find anything inappropriate on the part of the FBI or the U.S. intel community vis-a-vis -vis Obama spying. Clapper said, quote, well, I don't know. But I will say that using undercover agents is a standard and legitimate technique that is widely used in investigations. <laughs> That's not exactly a ringing endorsement. Do you, so do you think they're going to find anything inappropriate? I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> right. But meanwhile, he's saying, we don't like the term spying because it indicates that you know, people weren't following the rules. What well, do you think they're going to find any people that weren't following the rules? I don't know. Well, then why do you have a problem with the term spying? Because you don't know. All right, we'll get to the Andy McCarthy piece up next. The Pete Callender Show on WWNC. The Pete Callender Show. Politics, man. This country wants to keep me down. Keep everybody weak. The little man don't want to come to me. Then I'll come to you people and lay out the truth. Radio 570 WWNC. Do you want to know uh, ways to avoid costly financial mistakes? Don't look at me, okay? I am not the person to tell you, all right? Um, but if you want to learn how to avoid costly financial mistakes and survive during retirement, uh, then you want to make a phone call to Raymond Marks and reserve yourself a seat at one of his upcoming complimentary retirement dinner workshops. They are both going to be at the Grove Park Inn 
uh, they're on uh, one of one of them is uh, Monday, May twentieth, and then the next one is Thursday, the twenty third. They're both at six p.m. And if you call 800-715-4755, you can register for either one. Uh, you can also do it online at RaymondMarks.com. And uh, he will uh, he'll give you dinner. Uh, but also he will go over uh, things to do to protect all the money that you have saved, you've worked for your entire life, uh, and put away. You've you know, invested in it uh, or invested it into you know, the stock market, a lot of 401K or, SEP or uh, IRA or whatever the vehicle you've used. Um, but what are your plans? Do you even have any plans? Have you done any of those investments at all? You need to call Raymond, get some information, particularly if you're approaching retirement age. If you're like within the last five years before retiring, you need to talk to Raymond at 800-715-4755 and go to his uh, one of his workshops coming up the 20th or the 23rd, or uh, you can register at RaymondMARX.com. Um, the FBI's... Trump-Russia investigation, it was opened formally on false pretenses. What false pretenses? There were two components to the theory about Trump and uh, Russia, the Trump-Russia collusion. Two components, the emails and the intentions of Russia. All right, these are the two components that Andrew McCarthy breaks down over the course of like seven pages. I'm not going to go over all of it. I'm going to give you some of the highlights here, though. But... If you are having a problem understanding uh, how this whole thing started, McCarthy explains it up next. The Pete Callender Show on WWNC. This is the Pete Callender Show on News Radio 570 WWNC. Andrew McCarthy, writing at nationalreview.com, says the State Department and an Australian diplomat grossly exaggerated George Papadopoulos' claims, which were probably false anyway. Chicanery, which is a fantastic word, was the force behind the formal opening of the FBI investigation into Trump-Russia collusion. There was a false premise, namely that the Trump campaign must have known that Russia possessed emails related to Hillary Clinton. This really is an amazing thing if you think about it. Did, did anybody, did, did, did you actually think that when Trump made that comment at the rally about, hey, Russia, if you got Hillary's 30,000 emails, you know, I'm sure people would really like to see them. Did anybody... Did anybody think that that was like a, an urging for Russia to hack Hillary? That had already happened, right? The 30,000 emails was about the ones that she deleted off of her server that nobody believes, unless you're a Democrat or a media person. Apparently, nobody believes those emails were, uh, were actually about her yoga schedule and the seating chart for Chelsea's wedding. Okay, Nobody believes that. No, you delete 30,000 emails off of your server because you don't want anybody to ever see them because those were the ones that would have convicted you of mishandling classified information, right? 30,000 emails. It was a joke. Trump was making a joke. And it's hard for people to understand when Trump jokes because he doesn't do it a lot. His sense of humor is 
it's just not classic. Okay, <laughs> it's not. It, it's it. It's tough to get a read on his particular comedic stylings. Okay, I didn't think it like that. That was obviously a joke, but apparently, this is the thing. The Trump so. Through either intentional deception or incompetence, the foreign ministries of Australia and the U.S. erected a fraudulent story tying the Trump campaign's purported knowledge to the publication of hacked DNC emails. That is what we learn from the saga of George Papadopoulos as fleshed out by the Mueller report. McCarthy goes through the Mueller report and ties these, these points together in a way that I've not seen anybody else do. So he says, the investigative theory upon which the FBI launched its formal investigation, its foreign counterintelligence probe, Crossfire Hurricane, the investigative theory was that the Trump campaign knew about and was potentially complicit in Russia's possession of hacked emails that would compromise Hillary Clinton. And... That in order to help Donald Trump, the Kremlin planned to disseminate these emails anonymously through WikiLeaks at a time maximally damaging to Clinton's campaign. So there are two components, the emails and the intentions of the Russians. Right? Those are your two components to the theory. Neither one survives Mueller's report. Neither one. I'll explain why. First, let me get Greg here. Hello, Greg. Welcome to the show. What's up? Hey, Pete. How are you? Hey, I'm all right. Okay, first of all, I'm no lawyer, but when it comes to gathering evidence, you know, isn't the Steele dossier, which was based on, which was basically fabricated evidence, which was then used to start the whole Mueller investigation, you know, that, that was the basis for the, for the FISA warrant. So isn't anything that comes after a fabricated evidence-based warrant, isn't anything after that then inadmissible in court, and thus the whole Mueller investigation was based on a false-based warrant. Well, I, uh, too, am not a lawyer, uh, particularly one with experience in FISA courts, uh, and so I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. It's. I understand, like, the concept that you're you're talking about there is, you know, the, uh, the, the poison tree, fruit from the poison tree. If the yeah. tree is poison, you can't take the fruit off it, and, and that's why, you know, uh, convictions get tossed out because it was like an improper search. There wasn't really probable cause. So, right, yeah. So, uh, yeah, it, it seems like that would be the case. But I'm not sure if the FISA court operates under different standards, and I don't know if it operates under different standards simply to launch an investigation. But it seems like if lies were told in order to secure the warrants necessary to launch the the investigation, yes, it seems to me like then everything that comes from it would be poisoned fruit as well. But that's from a yeah, legal, just, that's a legal perspective, not a political perspective. Because the, the, yeah, the, exactly. yeah, they're trying to do political damage. Whether, they, whether or not they can ever get a conviction in a court of law, that's irrelevant. They're just trying to do political damage. Yeah, I understand it. Yeah, but I, I, haven't, I haven't heard this anywhere. I haven't heard it on Rush. I haven't heard it on any, certainly on any of the, uh, the news shows that, you know, the the whole, you know, the FISA warrant was based on fraudulent evidence. And so the FISA court, you know, started all of their all of their deliberations based on that. And so the whole Mueller investigation, which was then based on that, 
was based on a sham. Well, the the entire so the original so Crossfire Hurricane, the original investigation was not only based on the Steele dossier. And that's what McCarthy goes through and explains in his uh, in his piece here. I haven't gotten to it yet, but he he ba- so what started off as the Papadopoulos uh, uh, story about him running his mouth about how you know Russia's got some stuff, right? Then that gets folded into the Steele dossier. They were used together. That was the that. Yeah. And so when remember the initial response when this stuff about the Steele dossier came out and how that whole thing fell apart. Uh, and you you started seeing stories, you know, from leaks, of course, in the intelligence community that were saying, uh, you know, oh, it wasn't only about the dossier. That wasn't that wasn't it. That wasn't the only thing. The what they're talking about is the Papadopoulos scenario, which Mueller completely deconstructs as well in his report. So now both of those things were not true, but right. they were both used together. Right. Okay. Yeah. All right, Pete. I appreciate you. Yeah, Greg. All right. Yeah, I appreciate it. Um, and so, yeah, so McCarthy, I urge you to read the piece. It's at nationalreview.com. The FBI Trump Russia investigation was formally opened on false pretenses. If you really want to get into the weeds, and he's got page numbers cited for you, so you can go to the Mueller report, look it up for yourself as well. Um, but I'm going to give you the highlights because that's what I do. So, the one and only source for the email component of this story is George Papadopoulos. Okay, so again, the two components, emails and Russia's intentions. Right. So first, the emails. The only source for the email component of the story is Papadopoulos himself, who is, of course, a convicted liar, a person who was convicted of lying to the very people (laughs) that are now telling us right? that that we're saying this is what happened. Right. The Papadopoulos lie (laughs) to the FBI. The FBI believed him, though, apparently, or believed Something he said at some point that that prompted all of this. Okay, so other than his own word, there is no evidence, zero evidence, that he was told about emails by a guy named Joseph Mifsud. Have you heard this name before? Joseph Mifsud, M-I-F-S-U-D, or is it Mifsud? I'm not sure. Mifsud? He is a Maltese academic. Do you think his codename was the Maltese Falcon? Totally should be. I, I think if you're a Maltese and you're anyway involved in like intelligence stuff, you should be codenamed Maltese Falcon. Although I would, well, yeah, I would bet there's probably a couple others that have the name too. So probably we get confusing. All right. Anyway, um, he is a Maltese academic whom the FBI and the Mueller investigation deceptively portrayed as a Russian agent. All right. So who is this Mifsud guy? Mifsud had a chat with Papadopoulos. And this is what the FBI said was Papadopoulos's connection to Russia. Because they said, we think Mifsud could be a Russian agent. Um, if Mifsud, this is what McCarthy says, if Mifsud is the asset of any foreign intelligence service, it's Britain. <laughs> it's not Russia. It's the Brits. Mifsud denied any kind of Russian uh, connection. Of course he would, right? Uh, When he met Papadopoulos in London on April 26, 2016, he either knew about or he denied knowing anything about or saying anything about Russia's possession of Clinton-related emails. Okay? So, Mifsud denied 
when he met Papadopoulos that he either knew about or said anything about Russia's possession of Clinton-related emails. This was not discussed, okay? He never, the FBI, by the way, never charged Mifsud with lying to them, nothing. And so what does that tell you? His denial must be true, right? That what he said, that I never talked to Papadopoulos about these emails, that never happened, they would have charged him with lying to the FBI because they've charged everybody else with lying to the FBI and all of this. So why does Mifsud not get charged if he was in fact lying? Okay, so there is no evidence in the Mueller report that Mifsud had any reason to know the operations of Russia's intelligence services. Second, Papadopoulos never reported anything about Russia having emails. He never said anything to the Trump campaign superiors to whom he was constantly reporting on his conversations with Mifsud. Right? He never told the Trump campaign. You would think that here's this guy that's trying to ingratiate himself and prove his worth to the operation. Like You would think he would have said, guys, Russia's got a bunch of emails. They're going to get ready to dump him. He never said that to the Trump campaign. Never told anybody in the Trump campaign. He never said anything to Alex Downer, the Australian diplomat, whose conversation with Papadopoulos at the bar was the cause for the formal opening of the FBI probe. F, now, Papadopoulos told Downer that the Russians had damaging information. He never said emails. He never knew. He never knew what they had. He was just told he had heard that they had some information. What? Don't know. There's no evidence in the, report, in the Mueller report that Papadopoulos was ever told that Russia intended to disseminate damaging information about Clinton in a manner designed to hurt Clinton's candidacy and to help Donald Trump's. So this is the second component, Russia's intentions. There is also no evidence that Papadopoulos ever said a thing to anybody else, ever, including Downer, about any of this. The claim that Papadopoulos made such a statement is a fabrication initially founded on what at best was a deeply flawed assumption by Downer. So this is interesting. So you got to go backwards. you got to look at what happened, how it was reported, who said what, and piece it together, build a timeline. Okay? Journalism, in other words. On July 22nd, 2016, the eve of the DNC, and two months after Downer had met with Papadopoulos at that bar, so on the eve of the Democratic National Convention, WikiLeaks starts disseminating to the press all of the hacked emails from the DNC. Okay? Downer sees this, and Downer says, Aha, this is what Papadopoulos meant. He doesn't know that's what Papadopoulos meant. He doesn't have any evidence that that's what he, he just, he assumed. He said this is what, two months ago, this is what Papadopoulos was talking about. Um, McCarthy then goes through four different reasons why that is a bad assumption. I will not go over them all. They're very lengthy, but he breaks all of that apart. Um, and then, of course, Downer runs to... Uh, intelligence friends that he has and says this guy at the bar told me about the emails which never happened actually he didn't say emails he said russian now maybe you say oh that doesn't matter you know i don't know i think it does matter because papadopoulos said oh i've heard the russians they've got something on hillary okay well 
wasn't that pretty obvious? We all knew that everybody had all of the stuff that Hillary had sent off of her her homebrew server email account, right? Wasn't that generally accepted on your understanding that all these foreign intelligence agencies probably had all sorts of stuff because she had been sending all sorts of stuff on an unsecured server, and they knew it. Everybody knows this. Even Comey said that everybody knew that they like the 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 understanding is that all of our adversaries got everything she sent everybody knows so is so papadopoulos is you know his inside scoop here is that oh the russians got something on hillary well duh water is wet papadopoulos is extensively quoted in the Mueller report the prosecutors though avoid any quote from downer regarding what papadopoulos told him at the meeting this is consistent with Mueller's false statements charge against Papadopoulos. So you got two different documents, the Mueller report and the false statements charge that was filed against Papadopoulos. And that includes the statement of the offense, 14 pages, which omits any reference to Papadopoulos's meeting with Downer on May 6th, which is really weird because they've got this whole timeline and you have this chronology that goes from like May 4th and then goes right to May 13th. You just skipped over the May 6th meeting where the thing that allegedly is the linchpin to all of this happening, you just ignored that. That's not in the statement of the offense. It's weird. Instead, Mueller carefully describes not what Papadopoulos said to Downer, but what Downer thought Papadopoulos had suggested. <laughs> like, Well, I think what he meant was... Why don't we just ask Papadopoulos what he said? No, 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 let's not get crazy here. Namely, that the Trump campaign had received indications that the Russian government, uh, from the Russian government, that it could assist the campaign through the anonymous release of information that would be damaging to Hillary. The Trump campaign here is Papadopoulos. The Russian government is Mifsud. But Papadopoulos was as low-ranking as it got in the Trump campaign, and Mifsud, the source of the indications quote unquote was not part of the russian government at all <laughs> so this is basically two guys on facebook oh man i totally bet the russians got something by the way mifsud might actually be british intelligence and so maybe he passed it along from one of our allies <laughs> uh more to the point even if it were mistakenly assumed that mifsud was a russian government operative there's no evidence that Mifsud ever told Papadopoulos that the Russian government was planning to help Trump by doing it. Right? There, even if you say he's a Russian, there was never any indication that this was to do Trump a solid. Nobody ever said that. Well, it was understood, Pete. Of course, they don't ever mention this stuff outright. In his February interview with the FBI, February 2017 interview, Mifsud denied saying anything to Papadopoulos about Clinton-related emails in possession of the Kremlin. Again, he's not charged with lying to authorities. Prior to early July, when the FBI started receiving the Steele dossier reports, the intel community, particularly the CIA, under the direction of its hyper-political uh, hyper director, John Brennan, had, theorized, had been theorizing that the Trump campaign was in a corrupt relationship with Russia. Thanks to the Steele dossier, even before Downer reported his conversation with Papadopoulos to the State Department, the Obama administration had already been operating on the theory that Russia was planning to assist the Trump campaign 
through the anonymous release of information that would be damaging to Clinton. Do you think Steele, a former MI6 guy, do you think maybe he got some information from the Brits as well that said this was totally going to happen? They had already conveniently fit the hacked DNC emails into their theory. Downer's report enabled the Obama administration to cover an investigative theory that it was already pursuing with a report from a friendly foreign government, as if that report had triggered the investigation in the first place, when it did not. So in order to pull it off, it was necessary to distort what Papadopoulos told Downer. Are you following all of this? Okay, this is, all right. To repeat, here's McCarthy's summation. Papadopoulos never told Downer anything about emails. The Mueller report provides no basis for Papadopoulos to have known that Russia was planning the anonymous release of information damaging to Clinton in order to help Trump. The Mueller report does not allege that Papadopoulos actually told Downer any such thing. Okay, So the State Department's report to the FBI claiming that Papadopoulos had suggested these things to Downer, that was manufactured, that was made up, in order to portray a false connection between A, what Papadopoulos told Downer, and B, the hacking and publication of the DNC emails. And that false connection then became the rationale for formally opening the FBI Trump-Russia investigation, essentially paper cover for an investigation of the Trump campaign that was already underway. The Pete Callender Show on WWNC. The Pete Callender Show. Gentlemen, let's broaden our minds. All right, a couple, uh, well, one email here actually from Arnold who says, if an investigation by our government began, uh, begun, all right, began, I'm going to say, under false pretenses, can the one being investigated actually be accused of obstructing that investigation no matter his behavior or intent? Can he be accused of obstructing? Absolutely. Yeah. You can obstruct an investigation when you're innocent, folks. Like this, this is one of the lies that guys like Limbaugh are saying, in my opinion. Okay, like you can the the process crimes like I understand the the beef there and I I agree that it's like it's wrong that they go after people and then they just bust them on the process crime. I don't like that either, but you can, in fact, obstruct an investigation when you are innocent of the charge that they're investigating, just like somebody can walk up and watch cops investigate a scene and, you know, impede that investigation, obstruct that investigation somehow, lie to the authorities or something, and obstruct it, even though they didn't do the crime they get, that the cops are investigating. So, but yeah, yeah. I, is it natural, though, for somebody who's innocent and being investigated to try and shut it down when they have the power to do so? I'd say so, yes. Honestly. I'd say, yeah, that's the natural thing to do. And, yeah, you know what? Guys like Trump who have no experience in government and the optics of this from a partisan political standpoint, yeah, he's going to ask, like, shut it down, shut it down. But, by the way, I love this idea also that his 
his questions about can we shut this thing down, how do we do that, that somehow that's obstruction. See, I don't believe that's obstruction. He, he can obstruct, but I don't believe he did. I don't believe he, he's asking his attorneys, what can I do? That's why you have attorneys, right? You hire the attorneys to ask, what's legal? What can I do that's allowed? And then the attorney's like, okay, well, I would not advise you, you know, you assassinate somebody like that disagrees with you on something. Like, I would not recommend you do that. Like, does the attorney then go to the cops? They're like, hey, this guy asked about assassinating somebody. So you ask your attorneys what is allowed, what is not. That's the reason to have an attorney. So him asking, can we shut down this thing? How do we do that? How do we fire Comey? How do we get rid of Mueller? Like, how do we do this stuff? It never happened. Asking the question does not equal obstruction. So is that clear? I don't know if that's clear either. The Pete Callender Show on WWNC. The Pete Callender Show. Guys, do you remember the Be Smart speech? Sure. All right. Then what'd you do? What'd you do about it? The opposite. We were not smart. I feel like that's every day. I feel like that is every day for me. Um, this is a really smart thing to do all this month. $300 off any new roof with Balkan Roofing. You want a new roof? Do you want 300 bucks off? Do you want easy financing? Takes you like five minutes uh, to get approved? Call Balkan Roofing. That's B-A-L-K-E-N. Balkanroofing.com is their website. 1-800-NEW-ROOF is their phone number. Get a new roof for $300 off. Or if you just need some repairs... And maybe you don't know. They'll come out and they'll let you know. But if it's just repairs, you just have some patchwork that needs to be done, you can get 75 bucks off of any repair. For the month of May, $300 off any new roof, 75 bucks off any repair. All you got to do to get the discount is tell them where you heard it. Here, people. Here, You heard it here. It's, yes. Here. <laughs> so... Just mention my name or WWNC.com or not.com. Well, I guess you could say the website. WWNC, News Radio 570, Pete Callender. And if you get close to the last name, they'll know who you're talking about. 1-800-NEW-ROOF is the phone number. Give them a call. Get that roof fixed. It is springtime. It's rainy season. Get the roof fixed. Get it done right. Get a new roof, 300 bucks off. 1-800-NEW-ROOF, BalkanRoofing.com, the last roof you'll ever buy. Um, Jeff says, Pete, if you're running for top talk show host against a terrible person, and I said, Pete, I got all his emails that shows he's a terrible person. Would you take them? And all those emails, has anybody ever seen even one? Where are they at? That's a good question. Uh, no, it's a good, it's a, this is a, it's an ethical question is what you're asking as to whether or not you would take possession of some ill-gotten gains or something. I will tell you a story. It is not me, but this was a, um, it was a guy I knew years ago. He was working for a Democratic congressman who was running for re-election. And there was a Republican challenger. 
after the election, this person told me this. And uh, the Democrat won. The Democratic incumbent was presented with a, and by the way, this was not a safe seat at all. Okay, so this was a seat that has since become a Republican seat. This person, this congressman, was given an envelope of photos of his Republican challenger. And those photos were taken apparently at some sort of a bachelor party or something with a stripper slash hooker. And he was presented with that very question. Do you use this in an attempt to destroy your opponent? And the Democratic congressman shredded the photos. He didn't take them. He didn't use them. He says, I want to win that way. So that's an ethical choice everybody has to make for themselves. Do I think that if the Hillary Clinton campaign had gotten the same sort of deal, somebody went to them and said, hey, we got all this stuff. You can take down Trump. I'm sure she would. I'm sure she'd spend a lot of money on it. You know how I'm sure? Because she did. She did. They spent a ton of money on the Steele dossier. And then they shopped that thing around and they used it. That's how I know she would do it. Do I think the Trump campaign would try to get dirt on Hillary? Yeah. You know why? Because they tried. They went to the Trump Tower meeting with the woman. All she wanted to do was talk about the Magnitsky Act. They thought they were getting dirt. And they didn't. They tried. So, and obviously the ethical uh, choices are different depending on what the information is, I suspect. right? If it's life-ruining versus something that people really should know that's like, uh, you know, not of a personal nature, but more of uh, an ethical nature or like corruption, something like that, then yeah. Um, but I'm, I don't know. I've never been in a best talk show host contest before. Well, I take it back. There was that Mountain Express best of thing. And I, I never tried again. <laughs> uh, you know what we need to do? Let's do this now. Have you gotten something for your mom yet for Mother's Day? If not, here's a chance to get a pedicure, a free pedicure for mom at Carmen Carmen at Belk. And if you win, you then get entered into uh, the the drawing for the grand prize. We're going to be doing only five winners. So if you win today... You got, uh, you'll have a one in five chance, basically. Uh, the grand prize includes a one-hour massage, a one-hour facial, signature manicure, signature pedicure, hairstyling, and cosmetics application. Carmen Carmen Prestige Salon and Spa at Belk at the Asheville Mall. It's with Aveda Salon. This is the Mother's Day package. They'll customize the Aveda manicure and pedicure packages just for your mom. Uh, and obviously, if you don't win, this is a great idea, folks, if you are looking for a gift for mom this is also a really good uh idea it's a full service salon hairstyling uh facial treatments plus more you're gonna make mom feel special because carmen carmen will make her feel beautiful so we'll take right now the what did we do yesterday the fifth all right so we'll do i was gonna say the seventh but that would mean you have to then what do we do for zero all right how about this the 570th caller no i'm kidding (laughs) we'll do the We'll do the third caller at 
1-800-570-WWNC. Third caller, 240-9962, 1-800-570-WWNC. That uh, third caller wins the pedicure, and then that puts you into the drawing for the grand prize. We'll do that on Friday. Uh, the lines have been unblocked. So if you've been trying and you've been getting busy signals, keep at it because the lines have now been unblocked. And I do that in order to give the listeners on the iHeartRadio stream an equal chance of winning. Okay, We put everybody on hold, so it's sort of like the delayed gate or something you know, for, for the horse race. All right, uh, third caller, 240-9962 and 1-800-570-WWNC gets the pedicure for mom. At Carmen Carmen. Um, have you seen the the measles stories? <laughs> well, oh, also, there was another story, uh, story here. Eating raw rodents apparently is not good for you. Did you know this? Um, a Mongolian couple died from the bubonic plague after eating raw meat from a from a, a marmot marmot mammoth marmot i don't know it's some sort of a rodent it looks almost like a squirrel anyway um this couple ate this raw meat it sparked a quarantine that trapped tourists for days <laughs> according to afp which is like the ap of france the couple died may 1st in a remote area of the country's Bayan Ogi province, uh, which borders China and Russia. A six-day quarantine of more than 100 people who had come in contact with the couple, including locals and a number of foreign tourists, had been lifted uh, as of today, according to the World Health Organization. Uh, the BBC reports that the couple ate the rodents' raw meat and kidney, which is believed to be good for health. Mm, not so much not so much so they yeah so they ate this raw meat kidney and they got the bubonic plague from it uh the bubonic plague is transmitted via infected fleas and animals like prairie dogs squirrels rats and rabbits and uh and so they died we have our winner sam yeah Oh, great. Congratulations, Sam. He's now entered to win. We will give away. So uh, no more calls. We have our winner. Uh, we will give away the, uh, uh, another pedicure tomorrow and then another on Thursday and then another on Friday. And then we'll do the grand prize drawing sometime after that on Friday. Okay? And by the way, these are available at the store. So you just you just go to the store and get it. All right? You just show up and get it there. All right. Um Measles. NorthCarolinaHealthNews.org in a piece by Sarah Ovaska Few. Some pediatric practices around North Carolina are sending a strong message to parents and guardians hesitant to vaccinate. And that message is immunize or find another doctor. This is the tactic that Scott St. Clair and his colleagues at Boone's Blue Ridge Pediatric and Adolescent Medicine took in early 2015 when they announced the practice would no longer treat patients whose parents and guardians choose not to vaccinate for non-medical reasons. The decision came after the doctors at the Blue Ridge practice treated seven cases of pertussis or 
whooping cough. They were concerned that having the sick patients in their waiting rooms put other kids at risk. Those other kids uh, would be the ones that are not allowed to get vaccinated because they are too young or because they have some sort of a medical condition. Whooping cough with an effective vaccine against it widely available since the 1940s can be dangerous and even fatal for newborns who typically don't get their first dose of immunization until two months of age. And so Scott St. Clair, the doctor at this clinic in Boone, said, quote, we felt like we were putting other families at risk. The number of unvaccinated or partially vaccinated children appear to be rising in North Carolina. Um, so in 2014, more than 80% of North Carolina's toddlers were up to date on their series of seven vaccines recommended by the CDC and the American Academy of Pediatrics. Um, that rate exceeded the national numbers by nine points. All right. So just five years ago, 80% we're up to date on vaccines. And that 80% was above the national average of like 71%. So we were way ahead of the national rate. However, just three years later, the rate is now down to 70.1%. We lost, like, think about it, we lost nine points in five years. Nine percentage points in five years. North Carolina is now just slightly above the national average at 70.9% vaccinated versus 70.4%. The number of children without any vaccines at all uh, is still relatively small. It's 1.3% of toddlers born in 2015, but much higher than it was in 2001 when only 0.3%. So it went from 0.3 in 2001 to 1.3 now. Statewide numbers can mask a larger problem, though, because you don't have an outbreak over the entire state. You have outbreaks in pockets, right? That's where kids who are unvaccinated, if they are congregating in a certain area, they're living in a certain area, they are attending a certain school, Waldorf, then that's where the outbreak occurs. There have been a total of 764 confirmed cases of measles in 22 states. North Carolina has not yet been affected. The outbreak at Waldorf was chickenpox. Okay. Measles is extremely contagious. It can be transmitted through droplets in the air for up to two hours after an infected person coughs or sneezes. Did you know that? So, like... That's why, remember, they had to, uh, what, they put out that, that notice to everybody who went to, like, the Portland Trailblazers basketball game or something? Mm-hmm. Like, every one of the people, I don't know how many people were there. I don't know if it was sold out or what. But somebody with measles was in there, and then and they had to alert everybody in the arena. Uh, people caught it from somebody who walked through a grocery store, and then two hours later, you walk, you walk by and put your hand on something, and boop, you got it. And the thing is, you won't even know you're sick until the spotted rash appears. And that's four days after you become contagious. So you don't have any symptoms or anything for four days. And you're 
you're really contagious. So you're walking around, no problem. And then four days later, after you've been walking around, now you get the rash. And then they have to go back and try to backtrack all. This is why it's so, this is such a bad, and by the way, um, if you were born, like when I was born, we didn't get the second shot. Apparently there's now, like, it's a battery of two for MMR and for measles, mumps, rubella. And people born prior to, I think, 94, they only got one. So we're actually at a lower protection rate. Like, I, I might actually go and get another measles shot uh, vaccine. Yeah. I've I might actually go do that. Well. Yeah, because I don't trust y'all. There are a lot of y'all that are not doing your part here, and, like, it ain't going to be me that goes down from measles because you people aren't vaccinating your kids. Um, it's not entirely clear what is behind the recent drop in immunizations, although... There is suspicion it might be due to the spread of misinformation. <laughs> oh yeah, Jeez. do you what do you gave think you that clue? <laughs> <laughs> Not everybody believes that turning away unvaccinated patients is a good model, though. Robert Jacobson, the medical director of the Mayo Clinic's Population Health Science Program, said um, that he will treat unvaccinated children at pediatric clinics. Um, but they use that as an opportunity to try to convince parents to do it. Um, he says he doesn't want to make parents feel coerced to vaccinate in order to stay in a medical practice, that that undermines the larger goal of having parents understand and believe in the need for vaccination. It's an interesting turn of events, though, if you get doctor's offices now that stop seeing unvaccinated kids. Will that prompt parents to vaccinate their kids? I doubt it. They'll probably just go find doctors and then they'll all cluster around that office and then everybody will get it there. The Pete Callender Show on WWNC. Savings. The Pete Callender Show. All right, look, the weather is nice now and that means a lot of people are getting out and doing stuff and that means, yeah, you've probably done something to your back by now. In which case then, you need to go to the joint Quality chiropractic care at the joint is the answer if you are looking for a natural and drug-free solution to back pain. It's also more than just backs. Um, you're keeping your spine aligned. affects so many other parts of your body. Uh, a lot of people don't even realize it, that like a pain in your knee or your um, in your shoulder or your elbow is actually your spine, your vertebrae being out of alignment. So go to the joint. They're open seven days a week to better serve you. You don't need any appointment. You don't need any insurance. You don't need any referrals. You just walk on in the joint owned by North Carolina Chiropractic PC and operated by Mountain Wellness Inc. Thejoint.com. It is relief on so many levels. Did you hear that uh, there's been a bunch of measles cases confirmed in Tennessee? Eastern Tennessee. Mm-hmm. A little too close for comfort. I'll give you the details up next. The Pete Callender Show on WWNC. This is the Pete Callender Show on News Radio 570 WWNC. All right, we're talking about the measles. 
And um, Jonathan says, I literally just hopped in the car and caught the tail end of what you were just saying. The pediatrician group that we use takes it a step further. They won't see you unless you adhere to the American Academy of Pediatrics timetable for the vaccines. So that one up in Boone was like, if you don't get vaccinated, we don't want you as a patient. This one says you got to keep up with the timeline. If you don't do the timeline, you're out. Um, and Fred says, I looked it up. If you were born before 1957, you don't need any extra shot. So the old folks, he says, us old folks, I'm old enough to not need the booster. Well, yeah, so apparently there was like this window in which I was born, this window of time where there was just the one shot, and I guess it wasn't very good. I mean, it's like 90-something percent effective, but not 100%, and then you get the booster or whatever that thing is, the second shot, and then that puts you closer to 100%, but not. No, nobody's ever totally immune. So you can actually get the measles even with the vaccinations. Okay, it's just nothing is 100%. And there are a lot of people, by the way, who cannot get the vaccines because they are too sick, uh, they have compromised immune systems or something, they're too young, whatever. There are people who cannot get the vaccines that would like to get the vaccines to protect themselves. And they can't get the vaccines, and so they're counting on everybody else to be vaccinated. And then you have some people reading blogs who then say, don't vaccinate, and they put at risk everybody else who would like to be vaccinated but cannot. Um, and so there is now a, uh, there was a, is it an outbreak? I don't want to, I, I don't want to be, I'm not trying to hype stuff here. Five cases of measles as of May 2nd have been confirmed in eastern Tennessee, a spokesperson for the Tennessee Department of Health told the Asheville Citizen Times. With measles in our backyard, how vulnerable are Asheville area residents to infection? Nobody knows. We don't know. Not even the health department, according to the story by Elizabeth Ann Brown. An unspecified, sorry, an unspecific and rarely enforced reporting system on school vaccination rates means local health officials can't assess the level of risk until an infectious outbreak has already started. While many parents might assume that the government tracks the vaccination of each individual child, actually they rely on the reports from schools. And those reports are short on info, if they're even turned in at all. Hang on a second. Roadblock at Reams Creek and Blackberry slash Sugar Cove. Okay. Why are you look? What, what's the matter? Oh, right. You're looking very surprised, Seth. You're I'm not going that way. Right. Roadblock at Reams. I don't know. That's just a report from a listener. Good luck to you. Or if you're not in the area, then good job. Um, all right. So while many parents might assume the government tracks this, they actually don't. Uh, they rely on reports from schools. Under North Carolina law, there are two vaccine checkpoints in a kid's school career. One is in kindergarten, and one is in seventh grade. At each of these checkpoints, the school collects proof of immunization or proof of exemption from each student, and it submits that to the North Carolina Department of Health and Human Services. 
Buncombe County health officials receive only three numbers from these school checkpoints. They get a yearly tally of how many students are fully vaccinated. They get a tally of how many students received religious exemptions. And they get a number of how many students received medical exemptions. That's it. Those are the numbers that that they get. An exemption means that a kid is unvaccinated in part or in full, and that puts them together, uh, that lumps together a kindergarten who missed a chickenpox booster um, that has all the other vaccines, and it puts them in the same category as a student who got none of the vaccines, which doesn't really make a lot of sense. Why would you lump, you know, a kid who missed one chickenpox vaccine because of an allergic reaction? You lump that kid in with the kid that doesn't have any vaccines. That's not really the same deal, is it? And it's almost impossible, by the way, to gauge the risk of an epidemic without an accurate read on what proportion of the population is not immune. So nobody really knows until an outbreak happens, is what this uh, report says. More specific data are available only to public health officials after an outbreak has already begun. Um... Notably, the list of schools that has failed to report vaccine rates to the state includes the Asheville Waldorf School. That school made headlines last fall when it had the state's worst chickenpox outbreak in decades. Nearly 75% of the 150-plus students were unvaccinated for the virus, and unvaccinated students were quarantined for three weeks. The state health and human services, along with Buncombe County officials, were unable to immediately identify how many local schools have not complied with mandatory reporting laws. Preliminary data released to Buncombe County DHHS by state officials indicates that as of March, records had not been reported from five Buncombe County public schools with kindergartens and one uh, city public uh, public school kindergarten. Here, here they are. Glen Arden. Leicester, Pisgah, West Buncombe, and Estes. Asheville City Public Kindergarten, Asheville Primary School. All seven Buncombe County Public Schools and two Asheville City Public Schools with seventh graders, they're all accounted for. This is just for the data. They don't have the data from these schools. Data for private and charter schools was not immediately available, according to this reporter. In recent years, Buncombe County has had the highest rate of vaccine exemptions in the state with 5.7% of kindergartners receiving religious or medical exemptions. A lot of religious folks huh? in Buncombe County, a lot of religious people. Like, I don't want my kid to be protected from the measles. Polio, whatevs. God wants my child to run a higher risk of polio. Um, Counties... Actually, is polio even a vaccine? Is it? I don't even know. I was very young when I got vaccinated, so I don't remember all of the vaccines that I got. Counties along... there's It's listed, actually, in the story someplace. I forget. I feel like there was a vaccine for polio, right? Yeah, I want to see it. Um, counties along the Tennessee border, has uh, they have significantly lower exemption rates... Um, which, according to this report, might be might put make them better equipped or better prepared uh, for a measles outbreak in eastern Tennessee. Uh, 
I guess because if you got you know more immunized people in the border counties, when all of these infected babies start you know walking across the state line, we'll be able to repel that invasion. Uh, I think that's where the that's what the idea there is. So two point one percent exemption rate in Madison County, two point one in Haywood, point four in Swain. Give it up, Swain, with a ninety nine point six percent vaccination rate. That's Point six in Graham. All right, Graham. And then 2.9% in Cherokee. There was a there was a list. Of, I thought it was part of the story where it had all of the uh, all of the different vaccinations. But it's okay. Moving on. What year were you born? 1978. So you probably only got the one shot as well. Now there are two. From what I'm reading, they stopped giving the oral polio vaccine in like 2000. Ah, all right. Uh, polio was eliminated from the United States in 1979. Uh, I guess they, they give the injections. Yeah, so I probably had it. I mean, the vaccine, not the polio. Right, right. Right. All right, so if there's a polio outbreak, I'm fine. I'll be okay. Well, everybody else, all you newies, you newbies, nope, not so much. You guys are, you millennials. All right, do, 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 the distracted, address. oh, I got the school. Oh, yeah, all right, so we got school. All right. You've heard me reference this website, NC School Finances. Superintendent of Public Instruction, Mark Johnson, rolled out this website. Mm, let's see, when was this? What's today? So, eh, a little over a week ago. Okay. And it has all of the counties. It has all of the data on school funding levels and such, teacher pay, along with, uh, I mean, you get school supply budgets. You've got, you got, you got a lot of information. And you can look in individual counties you can find out what the median salaries are, median house price or uh, household incomes and stuff. It's a good comparison. Well, there has been left-wing backlash to this website. They are very upset at Mark Johnson for this website, which you know why. Because when you see the numbers now, it makes it more difficult to convince people that teachers are underpaid. It's just been such a uh, a long-standing narrative that uh, that teachers are not paid enough. I think there are a lot of people that don't know what to do now. <laughs> I don't know. They're, they're scrambling to figure out what what is the next narrative that they need to uh, that they need to adopt here. And this website makes it pretty clear. That look, you're not going to get rich teaching, but you're not going to starve either. It's a it's a really good compensation package. It is, and I say that as one who has a comparable degree. I do one who took a couple of classes back in college when I was thinking about being a teacher, and one who has covered education topics and went to all of the school board meetings and stuff. And I've been doing this now for like 20 years, and. In that entire time that I've been a reporter and a talk show host 
first a reporter, then a talk show host. I want to be clear because there are leftists who are like, you're not a reporter anymore. I don't claim to be a reporter anymore. I am not a journalist anymore. I am a talk show host. But when I was a reporter, when I was a journalist for half of my career, then I was aware of the compensation levels. And back then, the NEA, the National Education or Educators Association, the Teachers Union, they would always publish and would argue for the average teacher pay in North Carolina to be increased. And we would measure ourselves based on the average teacher pay of other states. It has been this way my entire adult professional career, okay, covering these issues. It has always been the NEA's national teacher average ranking system. And there are a lot of conservatives that rejected that ranking because it doesn't account for cost of living and the source of it is the NEA and their effort is to unionize more teachers. And so they are, of course, always trying to increase the pay so they get more dues. right? And this was the argument of why the NEA ranking should be viewed with skepticism and, and why... In a lot of cases, it, it's bunk, all right? And that, but even so, that was the standard. And this was the standard used by Democrats. It was the standard used by education officials and activists. It was the standard used by the media. Every time the, uh, the rankings came out, we would measure ourselves against everybody else, and it would get all of this coverage about how we are worst in America. We're 49th or 47th or Whatever. Oh, we used to be up here, and now we're down here. And it was used as a weapon against the Republicans over the last, now what, nine years, eight years actually? Constant pummeling of the Republicans for a state salary schedule that was frozen in place back in 08 by the Democrats during the recession. And over the next few years, we slipped. In those rankings, I'm not here now to argue about whether the rankings are bunk, whether they should be viewed with skepticism. I don't care. It doesn't matter to me. What I am for, though, is the consistent application of the standard. And that was the standard that we judged ourselves by my entire professional career covering education and the politics of North Carolina education. Okay, that was the number average teacher pay. There was some discussion about new teacher pay, and that should be higher, but even that was an average. But, yes, we want the salary schedules and the steps and all of that, but at the end of the day, it really was about the average teacher pay number. And now that the average teacher pay is somewhere around $53,000 a year, now all of a sudden that number isn't really a good number to use in the analysis. And this is the argument now being made by the very people who used the average teacher pay number for 20 years. Now they say, we can't use that number because it's not really a good number. A better number would be the median. The median. You know the difference between the mean or average, the average and the median, the mean and the median? You know what the difference is? Did you not, did you not fail, or did you fail statistics? Man, or math? I was good at geometry. Okay? Yeah, I hear you. Shapes. You're good at shapes? Yeah. Okay. Angles. <laughs> uh, hey, I had to take statistics three times. Uh, but I eventually passed it. 
Third time I got like over, a, I was like 130 score. Um, you sure about that number? Yeah, like I literally didn't even have to take the final exam because it all averaged out. So like, I, yes, I literally know. It was like 130-something, I forget. Um, but the, uh, the mean and the median. Mean is the average. So you take all of the numbers, right, add them all together, divide by the total number of teachers, right? So if you have all of the teachers and what they make, you add up all of their salaries and divide by the number of teachers. That gets you the average. And that's a good number if you want to know what the average is. I mean, it doesn't mean that everybody is at that number, obviously. you got people who are above it. you got people who are below it. But it's an average. It's a general number. Okay. And outliers can distort that. If you have one teacher making $7 million a year, it's going to bring that number way up. Okay. So now the argument is we need to use the median. The median is a different thing altogether. The median says you take all of the number of teachers, you lay out, you lay them all out in a line, left to right or up and down, and you count to the middle. One teacher from the top, one from the bottom, second from the top, second from the bottom. And you just count your way all the way into the middle. And when you find that middle number, that's the median. So there are an equal number of teachers above that line and an equal number of teachers below that line. That is the median. So when you hear median household income, that's what that means. The median teacher pay, that this is the figure now that they want us to be arguing over. The median base salary, this is just the state only. Well, I'll do the total mean, because then you also have to do the supplemental pay at the county level. Add it all together, the total mean is $50,198. All right? $50,198. The median, $49,603. A difference of $595. This is the big difference that now we are told we can't use the average. We need to use the median because they're so different. The difference is 600 bucks. By the way, that number you will not hear from the people who say we need to use the, med uh, the median. They won't tell you that number. They just say we need to use the median. They just say we shouldn't use the, the, the mean. We shouldn't use the average. And we definitely shouldn't compare the average teacher pay to the median household income. Because one's the average and one's the median. Does that make sense? Yeah, but kind of not. I understand why it would make sense, but it kind of doesn't. Because when you have a median household income, like that is the center, that's the middle, you have people in that household that are working and they're not working. So there's really no way to tell like how many people a household is. And so one teacher making the average is generally making more in North Carolina is making more than an entire household, the median household income. But even if I take your 49,000 number, your your median number, it's still more than the median household. And they're mad at the superintendent of public instruction of the state for pointing all of this out. The Pete Callender Show on WWNC. This is Harry's Body and Fender Time Saver Traffic. Traffic slow, 240 westbound between Merriman Avenue and Monford Avenue. 26 westbound is slow between Long Shoals Road and Brevard Road. Marion traffic remains stop and go. 40 westbound between Ashworth Road and Sugar Hill Road. Crash here, left lane block. 
Motorists are advised to follow the directions provided by on-scene law enforcement. Taking a look at the traffic volume in Woodfin, traffic moving well in Candler. No problems reported at this time. And traffic in Mills River, moving well. I'm Lynn Phil with your Time Saver Traffic. Eat. Seventy degrees in West Asheville. This live weather update is brought to you by T.P. Howard's Plumbing, handling Western North Carolina's plumbing emergencies for thirty-five years. Call them at six two eight thirteen sixty nine. Mark Thibodeau from the Weather Channel joins us now. Hello, Mark. How are you? Doing good, my friend. How are you doing? I am well, sir. I am well. It is beautiful out there. It is probably going to be nice for about another 24 hours and i think we're going to get that late week rain that still looks to be on target i was so hoping that would change uh but you know what i mean that being said in the sense of a glass half full like we were talking about yesterday Mm -hmm. uh, it's only tuesday so maybe it could change by friday so uh we'll see what happens here uh but it does look like we are going to get some uh some uh, heavy downpour type storms i think as we get into friday afternoon and friday evening and maybe to start the weekend too so the timing has been pretty steady. I'll uh, give the computer models credit on that, but I'm hoping it changes. So if we could just knock it back to like we were talking about yesterday, maybe Tuesday or something, that would be good. I'm still waiting for my people to talk to to all the other people on that one. But, all right. Uh, <laughs> Let's see what so, you can do. Uh, I'll see what I can do. Yeah. So tonight, pretty nice, 57 degrees, a small chance of a shower, and then maybe a pop-up storm or two as we head through Wednesday. Nothing uh, too robust or widespread. A high of uh, 77. We get to Thursday. Clouds in the increase. Again, maybe a pop-up storm, upper 70s for the high. Then Friday, eh, here we go. A good chance of thunderstorms in the afternoon and evening. Some could have heavy downpours. Right now, I'm not thinking a big severe threat. The big, uh, bigger threat would be maybe a brief heavy downpour in the afternoon. Some lightning, and of course, that can be dangerous too. So let's watch that for the end of the week. Upper 70s on Friday. Rain and a couple storms on Saturday. Highs of the upper 60s. And then Sunday looks a little drier, just maybe a few scattered storms. Sunday, the drier of the two days over the weekend. So that's good for Mother's Day. Sunday's high back in the low 70s. And drying out Monday completely with highs up in the low 70s. Lows throughout the time frame, mostly in the 50s. So there you go. All Not right. totally perfect, but at least Mother's Day is looking okay for us. Right. Yeah. So. All righty. You got that. In the sense of a glass half full. Right. Exactly. Absolutely. It's good. It's a new, this is a new, uh, like a New Year's resolution for us. <laughs> it really is. That's what I was just <laughs> thinking that. That's hilarious. <laughs> Uh, all righty. Glass half full. That's, that's a glass half full. This right. is a glass half full. All right. Mark Thibodeau from the Weather Channel. Thank you, sir. You got it, buddy. Right, have buddy. a good night. You too. Take care. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a uh, programming note. This Sunday, 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 we're going to be airing the best of Ron Burgundy podcast. It's going to be on WWNC at 8 p.m. So if you have not heard the Ron Burgundy podcast on the podcast on the iHeartRadio app, uh, this will be your opportunity to hear it on the radio, which basically podcasts are radio. It's amazing how people have finally come around to that understanding. (laughs) Isn't it? Right? Like, oh, I'm going to do a podcast. Oh, you mean radio? I remember seeing a bit by a comedian was talking about their smartphone and they were talking about how oh listen look at this it's or it was the was it that or is it the pod or is it the iPod I forget but they were they were talking to the some kid who was like all jazzed about their 
but the music. And look, I can have, I can hold it in my hand and I can plug in this headset and I can listen as I walk around. It's like, oh, you mean like a radio? Oh, yeah. yeah, like a radio. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <clears throat> um, are you in the um, military, a veteran? Are you law enforcement, firefighter, healthcare professional, or teacher? If you are, and you are thinking about buying or selling a home, did you know that there is a program called Homes for Heroes? And uh, it is open to people in those five um, professions. And you can keep 25% from the realtor commissions up to $3,000 on a $400,000 house. That's a deal, right? Keep more of your own money. And there are other programs out there that have tried to imitate this. They're not the same. They're not as good. This is the Homes for Heroes program, and there is only one real estate agent in Asheville that is a member of the Homes for Heroes program because they only pick one per market, and they picked Rowena Patton. And Rowena Patton and her all-star powerhouse team, always since I've met her years, like seven years ago, has always been tops in America in the Homes for Heroes program. And she's given back almost a million dollars. That's the goal. A million dollars. She wants to give back to people through this program. So if you are in any of those five professions, I don't know why you would call anybody else to buy or sell a home. She's got homes in all price points, and she's got buyers lined up. So buying or selling, call the only agent that I would call if I'm buying or selling. Rowena Patton, 333-4483, 333-4483, or online at mountainhomehunt.com and start packing. Uh, Mark says, Pete, a system based on ranking is necessarily inflationary. Somebody's got to be in the bottom half. Precisely, Mark. Yes, precisely. This was always, we're talking about the teacher, the average teacher pay rankings, which was used in order to push the states that had the states that came in below the average to push them higher so the idea was and if you think about it like let's say let's say just i'm going to make up some numbers here you have obviously 50 states well i guess 51 with dc because dc has its own rank um and let's say that the spread isn't really anything more than 10 grand, right? Like the people all the way at the top, let's say just for math purposes, let's say 55K and the people at the bottom. And so 50K would be the average and then 45K would be the lowest end, right? So, and everything is equally spaced out. So that's the average, right? So the top pay is 55 and bottom pay is 45 and the average is 50, okay? So if you come in as dead last and you're paying your teachers 45K and the most expensive teachers are at 55K, $10,000 difference. But you're not comparing. You think about this. That's not the argument that the NEA and the Democrats and the media always make. It's not that they never say we have to pay like when we were ranked, what, 47th? North Carolina is ranked 47th for the last few years. And now we're at like 29th. So... They never make the argument that we need to pay what the top is because that's like a lot of money, way above what we're paying now. And people can't really like, oh, come on, you're being unrealistic. 
So they always say, well, we need to at least get to the, the national average. And that sounds like a reasonable position. But in my example I gave, what's the reasonable position? Well, it's only 5K more. Is that really that? Does that mean that like, you're somehow not getting quality teachers because you're only paying 5K less? Well, not necessarily. Right? It doesn't take into, into account cost of living either. There isn't something that magically happens to the performance of the students when you push the pay up 5K. It just gets you to that middle point. And by the way, if everybody at the bottom, and, and by, this also is like really, it becomes a really irrelevant number when you're talking about those that are closer to the actual average, right? Aside from like the 45, the ones that, at 45K, you got teachers that'll be making like, you know, 49 <laughs> and so they're only a thousand away from the average. And so what? So get us to the national average. You can't really argue that because it's like, okay, so what? An extra $1,000 and then what? Student performance is going to increase? Which is also kind of an argument against the whole we demand to be treated like professionals because if you're a professional, you do your job regardless of what you're paid. You do the job. That's what being a professional means. Being a professional means like you understand this is the job, right? And so. If you're making the argument that I need to be treated as a professional, I don't think you can argue also that you're withholding your best work until you make more money. That doesn't sound like being, that really doesn't sound like you're a professional then, right? It sounds like you're kind of, like you're gold bricking a little bit. <laughs> you're bird dogging, you're hanging back. You're not, you're not giving it 100% because you don't feel like you're getting paid enough. Like somehow or another, if you just got the extra money, then you'd really care and you would be able to see students performing better. In which case, then you're actually harming the students. And that's really unprofessional. So I don't know. I've never understood that argument that I have to be paid more in order to be treated as a professional. It sounds extortive, and that's not professional either. So um, unless, of course, your job is a professional extortionist, and then that would be very professional in that case. But yes, Mark is correct. It is by definition, inflationary, because you're forcing everyone at the bottom to try to get to that average, which of course then does what? If everybody starts moving towards the national average, what happens? Think about it, Seth. Think about the math here. Uh, the average goes up. Yes. Very good. That's why it's necessarily inflationary. Every, it, when you start pushing all of those numbers up, then that national average moves up too. And guess what you can never hit? The average. Very good. Seth is three I'm for three. Learned. He's learned more today about math than probably yesterday. I don't know. Probably. Definitely, yeah. yeah. Than yesterday, definitely. Right. Um, and so there are a lot of lefties who are very mad at the uh, – at the superintendent for public instruction, and this warranted a six-page article in the at WRAL. Um, superintendent defends school finance website as critics call data deceptive. Okay, these are critics, by the way, of Republicans. Okay, Th this is not that they're critical of just the superintendent because they don't like him. I mean, they don't like him, but they don't like him because he's a Republican. All right, that's the key. If a Democrat had done this exact same thing, they wouldn't care. A Democrat wouldn't do it because they don't want people to know these numbers. Because this is one of my beefs with all of the polling that is ever done on teacher pay. You, they never ask, 
they never tell the people what the teacher pay is. They just ask, should teachers get paid more money? And everybody says yes, because nobody knows what teachers are actually paid. And that's what this is about. That's what all of this is about. It's about education from the Republican side. This is about trying to educate people so they understand. I mean, even I even have this argument with conservatives who say, oh, no, I don't get paid that. I'm a, I'm a teacher and I don't get paid that. Well, okay, well, this is an average, though. This is an average. And so you're going to have people that make less than it, and you're going to have people that make more than it. Well, that doesn't, uh, that, that obviously, th- those numbers have to include the local supplement. Well, they do. That's part of compensation. <laughs> so when, when doing an assessment of the compensation of teachers, yes, we include the compensation of teachers. I felt like I'd, I feel like I need to say that. I didn't think I did, but I, apparently I do. That if you're going to be adding up the compensation levels, you add the compensation levels. Right. Okay. So since its launch of this website, the NC School Finances website, uh, critics have accused the superintendent of presenting the data in a misleading and deceptive way. This is the Democrats' talking point, and it is a six-page article at WRAL that basically outlines all of the numbers and exposes that this is simply a talking point. That's all this is. So the website uh, in its graphic says the annual average projected compensation for teachers in the 2018-2019 school year is 53,975, so just under $54,000. The annual median North Carolina household income for 2017 is 50,320. The annual median wage for a person with a bachelor's, 47,258. The annual median wage in North Carolina for 2017, uh, just overall, 30,326. Okay, so those are the numbers. And they don't like the fact that there are three of them that are median and one of them that's average. Lauren Fox, Senior Director of Policy at the Public School Forum of North Carolina. I wonder what her politics are. Actually, I don't. Um, She says it's not appropriate to compare average salaries of one group to the median salary for the other. They're two different calculations, she says. Um... A spokesperson for the state superintendent said they considered using median teacher salary, but the standard of average goes back decades, mostly driven by the NEA's annual report on average teacher compensation and widely accepted by the news media, which is to report the average teacher's salary. As I said, my entire professional career, this has been the data, this has been the measurement, that the NEA and the North Carolina Democrats and Teachers Union has used. Average teacher pay, probably because it is inflationary. Switching from the common practice would cause confusion, but fortunately we know that in this case the median and the mean are very close since the teacher salary schedule precludes outliers which skew the mean, the average. Remember how I said earlier? That if you have a person making, you know, a a million dollar salary, that that's going to push that average number up. The DPI numbers exclude the outliers. And that's why the average that they provide is like $600, within $600 to the median. They're essentially the same figure. You're not making a better argument. 
You're just trying you're just trying to say we can't we can't use these numbers. And by the way, if you haven't figured out, they don't want to use numbers. That's why every time I ask what's the optimal per pupil spending number, they never say. What's the optimal teacher pay number? They never say. What's the optimal classroom budget number? They never say. Classroom supplies budget. Never say. They never give you an optimal number because either they don't know or it's just more. But actually, I think the answer to those questions really is Democrat. Those are the, that's the answer to all three of those questions. What's the per pupil, optimal per pupil number? Democrat. What's the optimal classroom budget number? Democrat. See, there is an answer. It's just not a number. All right, Randy, welcome to the show. Hey, Randy. Hey, how are you doing today? Hey, I'm all right. You are the king of Segway. I'm telling you what, you are the best at it that I've ever seen or heard anywhere in the country. Well, that's very kind. You are. You are your champ. Hey, uh, the question that I had was, uh, suppose tomorrow morning we all woke up and public schools were private and everyone brought their voucher. I mean, would that increase the pay for teachers or would it decrease the pay for teachers? I don't know. I'm not sure. I know. I know. Um, I've seen some research that private school teachers actually earn less than public school teachers, but they, uh, but a lot of them prefer it because they don't have to deal with the public school administrative bloat and they don't have to deal with the uh, with the students and the discipline issues. Uh huh. So okay. they they take a lower paycheck for better working conditions. Uh huh. All right. Well, that, that's pretty much what I wanted to know. Yeah I, yeah, I don't know if everything went private and everybody used vouchers. I'm not sure if teacher pay would. I, I, I believe that good teachers would actually be able to command more because I believe in free market capitalism. And so I think that if everybody had vouchers, the best teachers and the best schools, people would want to use their vouchers at those. So they would have to pay teachers more in order to attract the best ones at those schools. Bingo. I think you get the nail on the head then. Yeah, I think that's the way it would happen, but I don't know. Uh, I appreciate the call, Randy. Thanks, man. And uh, quick break. Back in a minute. The Pete Callender Show on WWNC. The Pete Callender Show. Well, I have been zinged and I love it. All right, I don't have a... I uh, about two minutes here. Uh, and so, we'll have a a personal note at the end of the program here. Um, first, I want to tell you the chief economist of the North Carolina General Assembly's Fiscal Research Division advised state lawmakers of, quote, extraordinary growth in tax payments. Revenue surplus estimated to be now more than $700 million. The optimistic collections forecast stands in stark contrast, says the Speaker of the House, Tim Moore, to the predictions of Governor Roy Cooper's budget team that warned of a $600 million budget shortfall <laughs> that uh, that's why he vetoed the last budget you'll recall he said it was going to lead to massive budget shortfalls that's class half empty man. that's half empty 600 million dollars shortfall is now a 700 million dollar surplus missed it by that much just about a billion dollars or so but otherwise totally nailed it totally nailed it uh, corporate income tax payments were up 42% over last year. So for all the folks who are like, evil corporations, we need to tax some more, we need to get more money, tax some more money. You want more of the corporate money? This is how you do it. This is how you do it. All right. Um, 
So we got a call today at the beginning of the show uh, from uh, Betty Ponder's family. And uh, our friend Betty has been in hospice for a while, and uh, she is now uh, not able to write us her emails that she writes usually. Uh, she is still listening, though. And um, so we just want to say, Betty, that we thank you for your friendship and uh, for participating in the program and for welcoming me into your day every day for the last seven years. I do appreciate that. I'll, I'll always be grateful for that. And uh, we want to let you know that we all love you. We're going to miss you. But we do look forward to seeing you again. So you are in our prayers. Your family is in our prayers. And we wish you the best. So until tomorrow, uh, we'll see you then. And you all don't break anything while I'm gone. The Pete Callender Show. We'll see you all again. Sleep tight.